Maybe you felt like me yesterday at Disneyland and at California Adventure. There was a lot to discover. I had not been to California Adventure in a long time, so coming into the park, I, it was interesting. I didn't recognize Main Street anymore. I was used to a big fountain right in the middle, and that was not there anymore. It was this big building, and it just felt like the whole place looked totally different. If you turn left as you walk into California Adventure, it's not Bugs Land anymore. That's how long it's been since I've been there. Uh, it's now the Marvel place, even uh, Cars Land was kind of new to me, and that was really cool. It felt like that was a place that they should have made a long time ago. I mean, uh, Cars Land was pretty cool. So all, all the different parts of the park were actually kind of hard for me to navigate, so it took a while. Uh, one time I was walking around with Carter Hawley, and, and he knows where to go. You know, Carter Hawley, he walks fast, he runs fast, he knows where to go, so he was saying, here's a shortcut. So it took me a while, but by the end of the night, I finally figured out where to get around in that park, and it's amazing because California Adventures actually not that big, but it took me about a day. And it was cool because at the beginning of the day, I felt like I was just exploring. I was just seeing the different places. I mean, they redid that whole Pacific Wharf place, and there was tons of um, food, and there was tons of tables, and all these people eating. And it was really cool. And it took me a while, and everywhere that I walked around, I felt like I was seeing something new. I mean, not only had I not been to California Adventure in a while, they changed their menu all the time. I heard from one of you, I think this stat came from Roy, that Disney makes a million dollars a month on churros. I don't know if that's true, but I started trying to count all the churro machines I could find. It was, a, it was an impressive day of me just kind of looking around. And I realized, even from the moment we came in the park, even before we got in the park, that when you get in the parking structure, there's all these attendants, and they all are wearing the same thing, and they like take you right to the very spot you're supposed to park, and I'm like, this is better than the Irvine Spectrum, right? I thought the Spectrum had a ton of parking, but this is better. They tell you exactly where to go. Uh, they charge you 30 bucks to do it, I guess, but uh, it was pretty cool how, how it all worked out, but maybe you felt that same way. A lot of exploring, a lot of learning. We spent the whole day yesterday at the Magic Kingdom, and a lot of people uh, take a lot of time to explore the Magic Kingdom, but I want to tell you that God promises a kingdom that's far better, and uh, one that many of us have never explored. The Bible gives us a lot of information about the kingdom of God, but sadly, if you were to take a quiz or you were forced to describe God's kingdom to somebody else, I bet a lot, a lot of us wouldn't do very well at that. We'd say, well, I know Jesus is the king, and I know it's going to be good, but I don't know much else about it. Well, I think for us to go through this life and not to study what God says about the future kingdom that he's bringing is a mistake for us. Because especially at the time of Jesus, the word kingdom was on everyone's mind. At the time of Isaiah, the word kingdom was on everyone's mind. So much so that if you were to scan through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you were to scan through those, you would find the word kingdom 126 times. There's only four books, right? That, that's, that's a lot. That's over 30 times per book they were talking about the kingdom. But sadly, most of us don't know much about the kingdom. We know some scant details, but I think this morning what I want to do as we study Isaiah 9 one more time, I want to study what God's word says about this kingdom that he's bringing, because that's what Isaiah 9 says. So please open up in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 and look at verse 7. Last time I explained a little bit of the background of what was going on politically when Isaiah wrote. He was writing to these people that had kingdoms that were always coming in and oppressing them and wronging them. And God has to say at some point, look, I'm going to put an end to all of that. There's going to be peace in your land. And frankly, if we're just 
looking honestly through history, God never brought lasting peace to his people and his land in the exact way that's promised in the Bible. And if you think that he did, I think we're selling God short of the specificity of which he makes promises. So many promises he makes about the Messiah that we talked about last time, that he fulfilled exactly. The reality is the promise of peace, not just in the region of the Middle East, which by the way is always the region that there seems to be the most conflict, but the promise of eternal and lasting peace has not been fulfilled yet. So that's why us as Christians, we can look forward and say, well, then this stuff is going to come in the future. So it's wise for us to learn what it says in the past. Now, Isaiah 9 talks about how the people who walked in darkness will see a great light. We talked about that. The people in Galilee the darkest region, so to speak, um, where people were getting oppressed and hurt and robbed. Um, These people are going to be the first ones to see the light that God is going to bring. And that's where Jesus fulfills that by showing up to Galilee, doing his miracles, and preaching about the kingdom. In fact, all the passages we talked about last time, I didn't even highlight this, but when it says Jesus came and shone a light in Galilee, do you know what it says that he preached about? One word. The kingdom, right? No, the is a different word, but um, kingdom. That's what we're talking about, right? The kingdom. We're talking about one thing, and that's what Jesus came to preach about and to tell people about, and really, the whole ministry of Jesus is trying to get people ready for the kingdom that's coming really soon. In verse six, we talked last week about how a child would be born for us and a son would be given. Look what it says in verse six. It says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Last time we talked, I said, I'm not going to talk much about that because I'm saving that for next time. Well, that's the whole theme of what verse 7 is all about. Drop down to verse 7. It says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Okay? I want to go phrase by phrase through this. That's very significant. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's a poetic way of saying that his government is going to be unlimited or fully expansive. Or like, you know, you blow air in a tire and it fills the whole tire. That's the kind of kingdom that he's going to bring. That's the kind of government he's going to have. Most people today, wisely, want a limited government. They don't want the government to have a lot of power. And the reason for that is because people are sinful and corrupt. And usually, the more power you give to someone, the the worse you're going to get hurt by them, right? So it makes sense for us here now to want that, but what he's saying here, I just want you to understand this. He is saying that in heaven, okay, and not just in heaven right now, but in the new world that he's going to make when he reforms this globe, that government that Jesus will be in charge of will be unlimited in its scope. There's nowhere where Jesus' sovereignty does not touch. There's not a piece of music. There's not a piece of art. There's not a decision, there's not a role, there's not a responsibility, there's not a piece of land, there's not a project that will happen in the new world where his rule and his reign does not extend to and touch. That's a scary statement if you're talking about a human leader who's sinful and evil. In fact, that's a terrifying statement. There's a word that you could use in politics to describe that, totalitarian government. Right? That means total government. Right now, you know, in China, you've probably read about this or heard about this. They have this immense control now on the people because of people's phones. And you have to have a certain app to, to work in certain places. And you have to you know, be able to scan your face to, to get in certain places. And they have this locked down control of their people. And that's scary when we hear about that. Well, 
because there's a lot of evil intentions. And even um, in China, they've made pretty clear that they don't believe in God and they replace God. Government is God there. Well, what God's word says is God will be God and God will be king. And Jesus will be the king of this new world. There's nowhere that his government doesn't touch. And notice what happens there. It says the increase of his government and of peace there'll be no end. Do you know why there's going to be peace in the world? And when Jesus comes, there will never be a war again. Do you know why that is? Because his government extends to the whole world, to every heart, to every person. That's what's going to happen in this new world. That's why there's never going to be a war again. Peace will have no end. Look at the next phrase. It says, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to, to establish it and to uphold it. Okay. Over this kingdom of David, that means that What's going to happen when Jesus comes back is he's going to fulfill the promises that God made to David. God made pretty expansive promises to David. He said that your descendants will always sit on the throne. Just like the sun and the moon just always exist in all these generations, David's descendants are going to sit on the throne. Where is David's descendant? Where is the throne? Where They're not ruling in Israel anymore. Okay? Even after Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, in 586 BC, you never really see a king from David's line reigning again. Even Herod, not from David's line. He's not even the king of the Jews, really. That was a false title he gave himself. Okay? So, did God make a mistake? Did, did, did God not mean what he said? Is God not powerful enough to keep this promise? You should all be thinking that, if you're thinking clearly about this. We should be thinking, well, how is he going to do this then? Well, Jesus comes along and you know, the gospels make very clear he's from the line of David. That's why the first chapter of the New Testament, you open it up and it's a bunch of names. And you're like, man, can I get past the names? Well, why are those names there? To show you God kept his promise to David. Jesus comes from the line of David. He's going to sit on the throne of David. And even right now, he reigns, and you know who he comes from? He comes from David. And over his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, right? Judah, you can call it. That, that's where this is all going to be centered. It's amazing. It's hard to believe. It says he'll establish it and uphold it. Uh, establishing means starting something. Upholding means continuing it. It takes a lot of energy and effort for people to start big projects, right? Um, if you were going to build a big building, it would take a lot of money. You'd have to raise a lot of money. You'd have to have a lot of construction workers and a lot of nuts and bolts and two-by-fours and steel beams and all that stuff, right? Um, it also takes a lot of money to sustain buildings, to pay the electric bill, right? to keep the, the lights on. It takes a lot of money to do that. The analogy I'm trying to give you is he's promising not only to establish this new world order, but to uphold it. And then you're thinking, okay, well, how long is he going to be able to do that? Like, how long can he afford to keep the lights on in this new place? Look what he says next. From this time forth and forevermore. You've got to understand Here's what God's word is promising. And if you feel like it's too good to be true, and if you feel like it's too big of a promise, you're starting to think rightly about what he's saying. Jesus will reign on the throne of David. Right? That means from the kingdom of Israel, he will establish perfect peace in righteousness and in justice from this time forth and forevermore for all of eternity. That's what he's promising. There's gonna be a new world where injustice will never reign, where God's people will never be wronged, and everyone will serve the Lord. As it says in Isaiah chapter 11, and as it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, that the knowledge of the Lord will flood the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's the promise. 
if you're an Israelite and you first heard this, and maybe Isaiah reads this to you, let's say you're a Judean official and you hear this for the first time, your, your first thought's like, there's no way. There's no way this could ever happen. And because of that, because it's hard to believe, look at the last phrase of verse seven. Look at the last phrase, everybody check it out. God makes a promise. He rarely does this in this kind of way, but he, he makes an exclamation mark. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Um, I was reading a sermon by uh, Charles Spurgeon, and in that sermon he was talking about how God did a lot of things without his zeal. Right? Um, he might be reading into it a little bit, but he said he created the world with a word. He upholds the world by the word of his power, and he does it dispassionately. It doesn't take him much effort. He just does it. Uh, providence, the way that he's ordered the world, the way he's made these plans, he just did it, and there's no mention in Scripture of him having passion behind it. But he's powerful and able to do it. And what that preacher said in the 1800s was, but notice that in this text, he says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts is behind the salvation of his people. God cares. He's emotionally attached. He's intimately involved in the details of him bringing about these promises and him saving his people from the oppression of evil people and of sin and of death, as we talked about last time. God's involved in this. God's personally attached to this. He will not let this project go unfinished. He'll bring salvation. He'll establish this kingdom. That's a lot for one verse. That's why we're only covering one verse this morning. But the reality is that many people, God's word says, are gonna be a part of this kingdom and many are not. And in fact, it doesn't just say some will be left out. It says that basically everyone will fall into one of two categories of people. Right? And that means even right now, if there was to be a great separation, which thankfully the great separation has not happened yet, but one day it will happen. But if we were to separate this room, it would be between people who are a part of the future group of kingdom people, the citizens. God's word says we're actually citizens right now, even before we get there. It's like we get a passport to a country we've never been a home of yet. But we're a part of it now and going to join it in the future. Or we're people who are enemies or rebels against that. And, and you might not think that. You might think you're just on the sidelines of this, right? It's not like you have to be for or against this thing. Well, God's word says in the end, everyone will be split into those two categories, even if you feel right now like you're not. And that's because Psalm chapter two says that if you're not on God's side, it's like you're rebelling against the king. If you're not on God's side and if you're not gonna get on board with what God's word says, and if you won't submit to Jesus, what you'll do is you'll spend your life rebelling against God's rules, fighting his authority, and my warning to you and my loving admonition for you is, hey guys, let's get on the right side of this king. This king is coming. He's gonna establish this perfect world. Don't miss out, and I don't wanna just say don't miss out because that's not even the right way to put it. The right way to put it is, if you're a rebel against the king, and some of us are this morning, if you're pushing against God's kingdom and thinking that maybe it's gonna work out for you, can I just tell you the only way this works out in your favor is if you submit if you bow the knee, if you surrender to God. Many of us have been pushing God off for years. You've gone to the narrow and you've gone to true north and you've been pushing God away for years and years and you've never wanted to submit to God. I understand that. I get that. I feel that. But God's word is very clear that his kingdom is coming and there's nothing you can do about it and there's nothing I can do about it. The only thing we can do about it is decide whether or not we're gonna be standing with Christ or we're standing against him. That's what I want to talk about this morning. 
That's the main application this morning. I said that many people don't even know much about the kingdom. So point number one, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to figure out what God says about his kingdom. We're going to do a little bit of a topical survey here. We're going to go phrase by phrase, of course, but we're going to talk about what the whole Bible says about this kingdom. There's a lot of verses for you to write down, so get your pens ready. Before we even give letter A here, I just want two verses for you to write down. One of them is very interesting. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Romans 8, 17, that the kingdom, the coming kingdom, belongs to Christ, right? He's the king. But we are included in the kingdom as co-heirs, co-heirs. Yesterday, no one was an heir to Disney, none of you, even if you have a season pass, even if you got a, the magic genie thing, none of you were heirs. Do you know why? Because if you were an heir, they wouldn't take your money. You'd be allowed in. You'd be going to the front of the line. You could park in the special employee lot. None of you did that, right? We're all the common people, right? We're not heirs of that place. If you were the heir to Disney, if, the, if, the, if your last name, let's just, just, let's just be honest, if your driver's license had the word Disney as your last name and you were Walt Disney's granddaughter or grandson, I, I think... You know, maybe we would have bought tickets through you because we probably would have got a better price. But I also think you wouldn't have parked in, in you know, the Pumbaa lot off of Catella, right? You wouldn't have walked that long. You wouldn't have done, you would have parked where you wanted to park. You would have gone where you wanted to go. You wouldn't have paid for anything. You would have had your, you know, little magic wristband thing and just scanned everything. And could, why? Because you own it. Because it's yours. Right? Even if you're not, like, running it, you're involved in it. Okay, that's where... God's word says something more than just you get to go. It says that you're going to inherit the kingdom. If you're a Christian, you are going to receive the kingdom with Christ. That's an amazing statement, okay? That should blow your minds. That should make you think, wait a minute. I mean, we don't just get to go. We get to get what the kingdom is. That's amazing. And then further, one more verse before letter A. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Luke 12, 32. Listen to what Jesus says about God's attitude about giving you the kingdom. This is interesting. He doesn't say that, yes, you're a a sinner and then that God begrudgingly lets you get stuff. Doesn't say that. Listen to what he says, Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. He's talking to his people. These are people who submit to him. Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So think that through. Two big thoughts. Romans 8, 17 says that you're an inheritor of the kingdom. That's huge. You don't just get to go. You don't just get to be included and then kicked out when, the, when you know, it closes at midnight. No, no, no. You're, you're an heir. Like you're going to get it in the end. And God doesn't begrudgingly like let you have it. No, no, no. He's excited about giving you this kingdom. It's the good pleasure of the Father to give you the kingdom. Those two realities are huge for Christians. That's the first thing. Before we dissect the particulars about the kingdom, I want you to understand that and think how encouraging that is. That God made you a co-heir if you're in Christ, and he's excited to give it to you. He's ready. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, yes, but he's excited. He's ready to give it to you. Phrase by phrase here, the increase of his government. What does that mean? Letter A. Um, It means this. King Jesus will defeat all his enemies. That's the first characteristic that we can understand about this kingdom. Uh, King Jesus will defeat all of his enemies. We mentioned that briefly last time we were together, because obviously verse 6 and verse 7 go together, so there's a lot of overlap. 
I try not to give you any overlapping verses to write down so that if you take last time's notes and this time's notes, you'll get a pretty good picture of what God says about his kingdom. But a verse I quickly referenced was Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45, but I never read it to you. As you're writing that down, listen to this. This is God's promise to Daniel the prophet after he saw a vision of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You might remember this, the dream with the statue and the rock that knocked over the statue that was made of all the different things. Listen to what he says. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It, the kingdom, shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So this kingdom is going to come and it's going to knock down and displace all these other kingdoms. But this one kingdom will never be displaced. No one's ever going to live in the houses that these people build. They will always inhabit those. The next verse. He says, just as you saw, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And it would broke in, in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. He's describing this vision he just had. He said, just as you saw this comet come out of the sky and just destroy this statue that was made of all these precious materials, just as you saw that, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. What is he saying? There's a kingdom that's going to come from out of this world, right? Not from amongst the world, but from outside of the world. Jesus made that clear in John 18, right? That my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom was of this world. My disciples will be fighting you right now, but it's going to come like a comet from heaven, something outside in, not inside out. That's an important characteristic of the kingdom, okay? Um, he's saying, look, this kingdom's going to come, and what is he going to do? Well, Daniel chapter 2 says he's going to destroy his enemies. And it's funny we don't typically think this way, but do you know who's going to be an enemy of the kingdom of Jesus? Who's going to be an enemy? Every nation. Every nation. Your nation. My nation. Right? Your tanks. Your God, like They will turn on him. Every nation will turn on King Jesus. That's why from amidst the nations, right, we're supposed to be righteous. Just as there's good, you know, you know, good people who fight in every country, not every country, but most every country, right? There's Christians, people who do that. Do you understand at the end, God's word promises that every nation is gonna turn against Jesus and only his people will be the remnant. Only the real Christians will be left. That's why I briefly mentioned Psalm 2, but I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 2. This is very interesting. Turn, turn to the left in your Bibles, to Psalm chapter 2, the very beginning of this book. It describes in detail God's view of the rebels, the people who fight against his rule, and what God is going to do. This is a great description of how Jesus will defeat his enemies. And Jesus is even included in this. Some of you think that Jesus' last name is Christ. It's not his last name. Um, Christ is a word that comes from Greek. It means anointed one. It comes from an Old Testament word, Hebrew word, which means anointed one, Messiah, the only time, the only time in the Old Testament where the word Messiah is directly used about Jesus is in Psalm chapter 2. Okay, we're going to read it together. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Asks a question at the beginning. It's a good question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
right? This is like your two-year-old cousin at Christmas time trying to figure out how he's going like, to you know, beat you up. Right? Okay, he can try, and he can kick, and he can scream, but he can only hit your kneecap, right? That's, and you just, you know, not that I recommend it, but you could if you needed to. Uh, if life was on the line and you know, you're afraid of your two-year-old cousin, it'd be pretty easy to just kind of push him off, right? Um, so it's the same question. Why do the nations rage? Why, do they, why does everyone plot in vain? It's like everyone makes their own little plan of how they are going to fight against God. How do you fight against God? Where do you shoot? Where, where do you, what do you, how, how do you fight against him? It says the kings of the earth. Look at verse number two. They set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. It's like they all get together, have these meetings, and think, okay, how are we going to overthrow God's rulership? This is against the Lord and against his anointed, his anointed, Messiah, okay? Against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed. Who are we talking about? The Father and the Son, okay? Even in this text, there's clear allusions to the anointed, right? That is also a reference to the king of Israel, which probably, at the point of this writing, we would think is probably David. So there's even a reference to David here. Look what it says next. Verse number three. It's in quotes in your Bibles, and I like that it's in quotes because I think it's uh, their statement. The people who come up with these plans, look what they say to God. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's like they feel like God has put them in a box. God has given too many rules. God, God has set things up a certain way. And they're like, let's just break out from God. Let's just fight him. Let's just, we can all get together and we can just, we can overthrow him maybe. Verse number four, look what it says. He who sits in heaven laughs. And the Bible says that God laughs at certain things. This is the thing that God laughs at. And the Lord holds them in derision. It's like, are you serious? Just like when you laugh, if a two-year-old says, I'm going to beat you up. It's like, well, maybe when you're 20, but not now. Um, and you laugh, you can laugh because it's like, oh, it's funny, you know, because they're not going to, right? I don't care if you're the, you know, the shortest freshman girl here, you know, your two-year-old cousin's not going to beat you up, right? Um, it's just not going to happen. You know, at Christmas time, when there's cousins around and they're going for presents and, and you know, that one rambunctious boy tries to fight you, right? You know this? The chest-bumping little boy. Oh, uh, it's not going to happen. So it says, in the same way, God looks and he laughs. Look at verse number five. It says, then... He will speak to them in his wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Um, what is he saying? Well, God says, I made my choice. I made my choice of a king. I made my choice of a ruler. And where did I set him? I set him on Zion. If you're going to look in David's time, where's the clear application for David's time? David's king. If you want to fight against David, look. God says, I made my decision. I don't care if you're the Philistines. I don't care if you're the Moabites or whoever wanted to fight against David. God sits in heaven and he laughs because he says, I made my decision. David's on the throne. Okay. But in a bigger way, I think what this text is pointing to is Jesus, and I can prove that from the New Testament. This is one of the most quoted passages in the whole New Testament. Psalm 2. Okay. Um, in the Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament. This is talking about Jesus. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. If people in our world today, let's bring it to our day, if people today want to make Jesus out to be whoever they want him to be, if they want to say, you know, I don't like Jesus' rules, I don't like the word of God, I don't like all those things, God can sit in heaven and laugh and say, look, I already made my decision. 
It's written, I gave you the information, my king is set on Zion, Jesus is king, and there's nothing you can do to change that. There's nothing I can do to change that. Verse number seven, it says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, so this is to this anointed one, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That's quoted in Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. You guys studied Hebrews last year? That's quoted about Jesus. Verse number eight says, ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. How is he going to do that? Look at verse number nine. This is God speaking to the Messiah. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The image is like you take a a big metal rod or a baseball bat to a, uh, a, a thing that you made in your ceramics class. Okay? You know the, the, the spinning table that you make the pottery thing? You're like, oh, that's amazing. And it's probably not as good as you think it is, but it took you a long time. You really worked on it. Okay, how does it work when you take that nice piece of clay, right, you, you set it on a table, you grab the baseball bat, you grab your drop three from, the, from, you know, your, um, from your garage, and you say, all right, who's going to win, the vessel or the baseball bat? Okay, every time that baseball bat is going to destroy that piece of pottery. He says that, that's what the Messiah is going to do to who? Well, it says that the nations are going to be his heritage. That's scary language, right? Because we are, we're, we're a part of the nations, right? And unless we join this person's team, unless we join this person's side, you should see yourself in verse 3, breaking God's bonds apart. That's, that's like what every non-Christian does and many of us in this room do. I don't want to follow God's rules. I don't like what God has to say. Can I just get around it? Can I just, can I just break his bonds apart? Maybe God won't know. Maybe God won't see. The fool says in his heart, maybe God doesn't see. Maybe he doesn't know what we do. We seem to be getting away with things. And it's like there's this constant rebellion until God says, enough. That's it. Verse number 10. He says, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and that you perish in the way. He's saying, I don't want you guys to, to perish. I don't want you guys to be ended. He says, just, just submit to this king, to the son, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And that sounds like such a negative thing, but look at the last phrase. This should speak to you and me. If you're a Christian, look what it says. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Happy are all the people that find their home to be safe with Jesus, the king. All of us fall into two categories. Either we're fighting against this kingdom and saying, I want to break God's bonds apart, or you're saying, I'm in. I'm excited about this. The first characteristic is that Jesus will defeat all of his enemies. And, and remember, if you're an enemy of him, that includes you. That's just that's what the Bible says. Luke 14, Jesus talked about the kingdom, especially in Luke 13. He was giving parables of the kingdom. But in Luke 14, he tells a story about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and he, he gives these people an urging. He says, guys, guys, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to think. Um, it's, it's like you have 10,000 soldiers, and you approach some with 20,000 soldiers. What do you need to do? You need to go send a delegation of peace. You need to surrender. That's what it's like. You can't fight this. You need to surrender to the king, and it would be good for you to surrender to the king. Jesus tells them that in Luke 14, 31 to 32. And I'd say the same thing to many of you this morning. You have been fighting God for a long time, some of you. Don't do that anymore. Just submit to him. 
Just say, yes, I will, I will follow King Jesus. Yes, I'll submit to him. I believe these things. I trust him. I don't want to perish in the way, but more than that, I'm not just scared of dying. I, what I really want is I want to be a part of what God is doing. He invites you. He can say to you, you can be a rebel, right? You can be a Psalm 2 rebel this morning. And by this afternoon, if you humble yourself to God, then God's word says about you, it is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's the amazing grace of God. It's comfort for those of us in Christ that letter A, he'll defeat all of his enemies, and letter B um, says he'll have peace that has no end. What does that mean? I had you write it down like this, letter B. King Jesus will establish lasting peace. King Jesus will establish lasting peace. That's very, very comforting if you come from a time of war like these people did. We don't really know a time of war in the same way that they did, but we do know some war. We do know some conflict. Many of you look back on your childhood and some of your worst memories as a child were getting hurt or injured, right? Well, there's a little war in that that you might not think about, but God's word describes and says God's even going to bring that kind of stuff at peace. Here's how he puts it. In Isaiah chapter 11, so only a couple chapters after Isaiah 9, two chapters to be exact, God makes promises about the kingdom. And one thing that he says, Isaiah 11, 6, promises this about this new world. He says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down next to the young goat. Okay? If you ever saw that happen, what you would see in our world is one of those like Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, Chases, right? You know, you've seen those where, you know, the gazelle and the lion and dinner, right? That's, you, that's what would happen if you saw this today. But he says, no, 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 it's like the wolf and the lamb, they're going to hang out together. And the, the leopard and the young goat, they'll be together. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf. Even the best meal, they're going to sit together and there's going to be no fighting between these animals. It's kind of weird. It says the cow and the bear shall graze. Grazing animals eat grass. Okay? So he's saying like, there's going to be vegetarian animals now. Weird. Uh, has that ever happened? No, that's never happened. Did God break his promise? It's not, is this not what he really means? Well, uh, keep going. It says the young shall lie down their young shall lie down together, the cow and the bear. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. That's weird. They're carnivores right now. Um, I like verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. Um, can you imagine a little Eden running? I know she runs a lot of places. She probably shouldn't run. Um, maybe we're bad parents. So I don't know. We're figuring it out. But one place I know we're not going to let her run around is by the cobra hole. Right? There's a king cobra that can kill everybody. Uh, we're not saying, oh yeah, Eden, go play with the cobra. Right? The, the idea is this, these babies that will waddle around in, in this kingdom of Jesus can go over the hole of the, of the cobra, and it's all good. Nobody's even concerned. Why? Because there's no more war like that. And not just battles and you know, shields and swords and guns and tanks. Not like that kind of war, too. That kind of war is included, but there's not even like this war in nature anymore. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, and the wean child shall put in the, his hand in the adder's den, right? Like the, the eight-year-old can stick his hand in all of the animal things and not be afraid of getting bitten or hurt. It says, they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? That's the picture we quoted at the beginning. 
Jesus is going to bring lasting peace. And in fact, um, the peace that we're talking about, and I think the, the first fulfillment of this kingdom is described in Revelation chapter 20, where it says he's going to reign for a thousand years. I think that's the best way that we can look at these promises and say, where are they fulfilled? Well, they're fulfilled when Jesus reigns literally in Israel. Just like Ezekiel says in chapter 40 to 48, that confusing section about that temple that was way too big. Do you remember reading that in the DBR? And like, okay, that temple never got built. Like, where is that? Well, I think that temple is going to be on Jerusalem, on the Mount of Zion, which what's going to happen is the whole topography is going to change. Isaiah chapter 2 says the mountain shall be lifted up and the, the rough places shall be made plain and there's going to be this new, like, geography. Zechariah chapter 14 talks about this too, that the land around the, the, the Jerusalem, where it's really hilly, it's like Laguna Hills and Aliso Viejo, it shall be flat, like L.A., right? Like um, Torrance, right? Like, uh, I don't know, what's another flat city? Uh, city of Industry or, you know, Long Beach, right? Just except for Signal Hill, I guess. But just flat, right? It's very flat. That's what it's going to be like. And what's going to happen is this city's going to rise up and that temple that Ezekiel describes will be there and Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years. Remember in Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's all the land allotments, the one for the prince and for David and for all the tribes. And it's like, that's never been fulfilled. Was Ezekiel wrong? Was God wrong? Can God not do it? No, I think he's going to do that in that thousand year reign. And it says all these nations will now come bring tribute to the city of Jerusalem where this is all going to happen. This is promised in the Bible. This is ancient. But the end of Revelation 20 says there's going to be a rebellion at the end of all that. There's going to be one final battle, one final attempt by Satan and, his, and the enemies of God to overthrow him. Some people will be seduced and pulled away from all this. That's why it's like, why does the Bible say there's little babies in heaven? Well, it doesn't say that there's babies in heaven. It says there's one day going to be a kingdom where babies can exist with cobras. Well, that's only possible in that Revelation 20 time period because in Revelation 21, he says after all that, he's going to make a new world, new heavens, new earth. Revelation 21, verse 3 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The next verse, Revelation 21, 4, says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I like how the end of our passage, Isaiah 9, 7 says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then Jesus says, it is done. I've done it. I promised it. And for thousands of years, God's people have been saying, when is God going to do it again? When is he going to do it? When is he going to do it? Well, he says, I've done it. It's done. Revelation 21. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. That's a, that's a quotation from the Old Testament about God himself. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, to the people who need stuff like we do, I'll give from the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, he'll have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. That's what he says about you in Christ. Verse number eight. This is Revelation 21, eight. How is this world kept pure? How is this world kept Righteous forever. Well, it says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, which by the way, God takes the sin of lying very seriously. All liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Okay. Based on that list, don't we all 
qualify for people who are going to be excluded. And if we just had that verse apart from the context, we might say everyone's going to go to the second death. But thankfully, we have it in the context of Revelation 21, which says, look, God's people are going to be there. But how is this kingdom established and upheld forever perfectly? Well, it's because people who sin are going to be kept out. And those of you who do sin, which includes me and all of us, right? You know, understand that Christians, we're going to be made perfect so that we won't desire sin. Some of us are concerned, like, what if I like, go to heaven and I'm the one who messes it up? Right? You understand that if you get there and God brings you there, um, he's going to change you such a, in such a way that you'll never desire sin and you will never sin. You'll be kept blameless and spotless for eternity. He's going to establish lasting peace forever. The phrase about David's kingdom is interesting. Letter C, King Jesus will fulfill promises to David. I mentioned this before. Letter C, um, King Jesus will fulfill promises to David. The main chapter where promises to David are found is 2 Samuel 7. Right, that's a very important chapter of the Bible. It's the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16 in particular. But these promise made to David, I love how they're summarized in Psalm 89. This is not the time they were promised, but I love the quick summary that uh, Psalm 89 gives. It says, once for all, God speaks, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun stands before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. That's what my promises are like to David. The reason I know that Jesus fulfills these and the reason I know that Jesus will complete these fulfillments in the future is because it's exactly what Gabriel, the angel, said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. So interesting how the Bible, you know, you can just jump around how it quotes itself. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33, Gabriel, who hasn't come and talked to a human being since Daniel chapter 9 when he told Daniel that the Messiah was coming, now he comes to Mary, a teenage girl, and says this, this baby that you have. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high, just like he said to Daniel hundreds of years earlier. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, which is another name for Israel, forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Did he not fulfill that? We should all be thinking, okay, so like, is that what he meant? Did he mean that? Is that, is that? I think the best way to interpret this is yes. We just haven't seen the end of King Jesus yet. Yes, he will do this. Yes, he will reign over Jacob. Letter D, one of the points here in Isaiah chapter nine is that he'll reign in justice and righteousness. Um, I'd love for you to write it down this way. Um, King Jesus will rule with perfect justice. That's shorthand for for what this whole passage is about. He'll reign with perfect justice. That's letter D. King Jesus will um, rule, sorry, with perfect justice. Our world uh, has never seen this before. You could go back to Cain and Abel, and the world has never seen perfect justice. So many of you have gone through experiences where you feel like people get away with things. It's like they should have paid a price for that, but they never do. Heard a story this week about um, one of the people who was responsible for a terrorist attack in the 80s who uh, was in prison, I think, in Libya, and he's, he's getting moved to the United States, and they're trying to take him up on charges for this terrorist attack that he committed over Scotland on a Pan Am flight. Heard about this this week. Obviously, uh, didn't hear about 
the terrorist attack went because I wasn't alive at that point. Um, but it was like 35 years ago that this, this terrorist attack happened. But now they've caught one of the guys who claimed that he did and he made the bomb. And they're going to try to uh, try him and see if they can um, get some kind of justice. But even in that situation, it's like th- it's been 35 years, right? 260 odd people died in that terrorist attack. It blew up a whole plane. Um, where's, the, where's the justice, right? What about all the, the, the sons and the daughters and the moms and the dads that were on that plane? What about all that? Is there any real justice for the emotional hurt and all the things that happened? Is there any real justice that's really taken place yet? Even if this guy like goes to jail and gets three meals a day for the rest of his life, is there really justice in that? If we're honest, we have to say, no, there's, that's, not, that's not really justice yet. God has to be the one to do that. None of us are capable of that. The best that humans can do still falls short of the standard of justice. Isaiah 16, 5 says, Then the throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit faithfulness in the tent of David, the one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. That's a characteristic of Jesus. You could look around the world, just like Amos did, We just read the book of Amos um, in the DBR. In Amos chapter 2, he says that the people in Israel were so sinful, they were ready to sell someone into slavery for a pair of sandals. So that's how quick my people are to sin. And and in that region, there were probably people who were literally maybe selling sons and daughters or selling family members into slavery just so that they could maybe, you know, get some sandals or, or the needy for some silver. They don't even need it. They just, they just want, they're greedy. And Amos says, where's the justice in that? There's no justice in that. Later on in that book, Amos 5, 24, he says about this day of the Lord that God will bring, he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right? Has that really happened yet, though? Has it really? Uh, no, it, it hasn't. The day of the Lord will come and, and people will get what they deserve. If you're someone who's been really, really, really wronged, um, I, I need you to realize that God is going to give people what they deserve, with one exception. The people who are safe in Christ, he gives Jesus what they deserved. Every wrong thing that has ever been done against you or to you or done by you will be paid for. Everything that I've ever done that's wrong will be paid for. But it's either paid on my account, in hell, or it's paid in Christ. Um, Same thing's true for you. You've got to trust that God's going to bring perfect justice and he'll rule with perfect justice. That's why it's so scary to give someone so much power. You would never want someone to have the power Jesus claims he's going to have unless he was righteous, free from sin, perfect, always doing what's good, always helping the people that need. That's exactly what he promises. That's this kingdom. All this is hard to believe. And if you thought it was hard to believe, you should think it's hard to believe. It would be a miracle if this happened. And that's why God promises a miracle. It's exactly why God says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All this is going to be hard to believe for God's people. And frankly, for some of you, it's probably hard to believe. But God says he's going to do it. His zeal, his jealousy is in this. His emotions are in this, even more than in his creating the world and him doing other amazing things. They don't say the zeal of the Lord of hosts was involved in that. Sometimes it does, but this time he says, yes, I will accomplish this. Point number two, I want you to expect God to bring his kingdom soon. 
I want you to expect God to bring his kingdom soon. Deuteronomy 4, 24 gives a description of God. It says he's a jealous God. He has zeal for his people. Deuteronomy 4, 24 says, for, your, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He's a jealous God. Zeal is this jealousy or intense passion to protect. God is so powerful, he's able to do this. But imagine when God's power is combined with God's zeal. When those two things go together, you have a lot of assurance. And that's why instead of studying a lot of different things, I want to just turn to one more passage here. Turn to the right in your, your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. Because Peter summarizes so well what we should do. When we look back at these Old Testament promises, he actually starts this passage in Second Peter 3 by saying, you should read and study the predictions of the holy prophets. He's saying, read Isaiah, read Micah, read the book of Zechariah, which to us is a good reminder as we're in the season of the year where we're reading the prophets, the minor prophets. You know what you should do tonight? You know what you should do tomorrow morning? Read the prophets, read them. Second Peter 3 says you should remember the holy prophets, the predictions of the holy prophets. Second Peter 3, 1 says, now this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. And in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm reminding you of something you know. You've heard this before. But verse number two says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So remember it. And what he's gonna talk about in the next few verses is how there was a time period in history where everyone thought the world would keep going the same way and then God came in and destroyed it. Do you remember what that time was? It was a time where everyone was eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, but God's judgment came in with a flood, Noah, the flood in Genesis chapter six, and he saved some and destroyed others for their sin. It says, in the same way, just like the world was deluged in water, he says, this time there's not going to be a flood like that of water. He says, now it's going to be like, like a flood of, of fire, verse number seven. But the same word, by the same word, that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire and being kept until the judgment, the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Verse number eight is where we really want to pick it up here. Check it out, verse number eight. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's talking to Christians. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Some of us get that confused and we think, okay, so like, does that mean like three days and, you know, a thousand, three thousand? No, I don't think this is a time marker. The point is to say, you know, with God, your experience of one day is like his experience of a thousand years and also inversely, kind of weird thought, that your experience of a thousand years would be like his experience of one day. The point is, he doesn't operate in time the same way we do. He doesn't feel time the same way we do. I think the, the idea is he's atemporal. That's the term to say that God is, stands outside of the timeline that we all live in. Verse number nine. What's the point of that? Well, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. People can look at, God's word and say, yeah, Jesus promised to come back. Well, then he should have come back sooner. He must not be coming back. No, he says, he's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Okay, this is a crazy thought, but do you realize that there have been Christians for 
Now, 2,000 years that have been praying for Jesus to return and for Jesus to take his church. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. He hasn't done that yet. And some of us say, well, is God just slow to do that? Well, you know, the reason given in Scripture right here in verse 10 is he wants some of you to repent. Do you understand that if Jesus came back two years ago, just, just two years ago, right, 2020, It was a weird year. But just imagine he did. That would have been funny. Uh, But imagine he came back in 2020. How many people in this room right now were not right with God two years ago? How many? Who right now stand in right relationship with Christ. So God didn't answer the prayers of people two years ago. Why? For your sake. You you understand that God has a plan. He has people that he's going to continue to save. And when the last people that Jesus has to save are saved, then, then that's it that he's going to come back. But, verse number 10, look at it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Whether we're talking about actual heavenly bodies, like bodies that people had, or we're talking about sun, moon, and stars there. It's also another phrase for heavenly bodies. Point is, it's all gonna be different, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's a scary verse to people who are not right with God. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved in the future, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If everything here and now is going to burn, so to speak, that's the imagery here, um, what kind of people should you be? i never forget there was a and a babysitter one time uh, when I was a little kid, and I just remember something she said a lot. One time we accidentally like put a dent in the side of her car. Um, probably shouldn't have done that. Um, it was like in her trunk. Like my brother and I were jumping in and out of the trunk, and um, uh, that kind of sounds weird. It was in our driveway. I just remember all this, and we like we messed something up, or we tore a part of the back of the trunk open. Right? Um, this was years and years ago now, but I just remember what she said. She said, "Oh, don't worry." it'll burn. And she said that a lot, like, oh, it'll burn, it's fine, it'll burn. And her whole point was like, hey, it doesn't matter, it's just a thing, it's gonna burn. I, and yeah, where's that car now? It's probably in a junkyard, or maybe, maybe one of you is driving, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know where it is. Maybe you would want to drive, I don't know. It's probably like a you know, 2004 Camry or something, I don't know. It's, it, it doesn't even matter anymore. It's only been a few years. But the point is, her perspective was good on it, right? I'll never forget it. It's like, well, it'll, it'll burn, it'll burn. He says, if, if all these things are going to be dissolved, what should you be like? You should be waiting for, verse 12, and hastening. Hastening means to speed something up or to call it ahead, to say, no, 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 come faster. Hastening, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse number 13 might be one of the most encouraging verses you hear today. It says, but according to his promises, found where? Well, found in Isaiah 9 and other places. We, Christians, are waiting for new heavens and a new earth with new bodies and everything that's included in a new actual physical earth. This is not in the sky, disembodied. No, no, no. This is a new world in which righteousness dwells. That's what we long for. Honestly, if you're a Christian, you have a holy heart that's made holy by God. That is the fulfillment to your every longing and desire right there. Unless you're a person, like Psalm chapter 2 says, who's trying to break against the bonds of God. Which is why this morning I just want you to be encouraged. Understand that God has made so many promises that he calls us to trust in. 
calls you to trust. That's what he calls you to do. Calls you to be holy, calls you to trust. If you're an enemy of God, I want to call you again this morning to stop being an enemy of God and to know that he'll accept you today on his team, not based on your merit, but based on the merits of Christ. Let me pray that God would keep accomplishing that work among us. God, your good and your steadfast love endures forever. Your faithfulness endures to every generation. We pray this morning that you are going to convict students. I trust that you will for your glory. Pray further that those of us who are right with you would be the kind of people you want us to be now. That we'd have the right perspective on our stuff and on the things that we want and on our futures and all of that, knowing that our future is secure with you. I pray that we'd be holy people. I pray that you would help us do that. I pray that we'd be encouraged people this morning. I pray that this sermon with all these different promises from the Old Testament and the New Testament would all serve to comfort the hearts of your people as we head into this Christmas time where we celebrate your birth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.